I want you to turn to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Rebecca read that passage so beautifully. We welcome everyone that's joining us uh, in the hub service there and also those that are online. Certainly we pray for so many people that are traveling away from us, but glad they can join as well uh, online today. Now every church that I've ever heard of maintains something, and that is maintains a lost and found. A lost and found. And it's amazing what I have seen people leave in church over the years. I mean, we have found glasses, earrings, hearing aids. I hope those weren't taken out during the message. <laughs> Maybe the music. Phones, jewelry, articles of clothing, Bibles. Some of you don't miss your Bible nearly soon enough, I'll tell you that. We've kept a record. <laughs> but years ago, many years ago, um, as we maintained the lost and found, and we still do, but we had a little cubicle out here where we kept those items at that time. And uh, I was going through that one time, and I saw something that had been there for months and months and months. And I decided, well, that needs a home. <laughs> and so I found these battery cables. <laughs> I don't know how battery cables got in church, but found these battery cables. And if... This is many years ago, so if you recognize them, I want you to know the statute of limitations. <laughs> That's taken effect. But over the years, these battery cables have been so valuable. They've been valuable to me, they've been valuable to our family, but also scores of people, as I've just kept them in my car, uh, been able to jump their batteries, uh, some here at church and some just out but been very, very valuable item that I've kept. This morning and next Sunday morning, we're looking at this passage of Scripture, Luke chapter 15, and I want you to know that it is the lost and found of the New Testament. It's the lost and found of the New Testament. And there's some powerful things in this lost and found. Powerful enough to give life to dead souls. Powerful enough to recharge the stamina and strength of folks who perhaps have grown tired in the Lord's work. And I'm excited for us to have this Sunday and next Sunday to look at this wonderful chapter, The Lost and Found of the New Testament. Now... Chapter 15 of the Gospel of Luke has been called the gospel within a gospel. The gospel within a gospel. Because, of course, we are making a journey through the gospel of Luke. But when you come to chapter 15, you have in these verses, at the heart of the gospel of Luke, the message from the Lord Jesus Christ in beautiful parable unforgettable in its images that remind us, teach us 
about the gospel, perhaps in a way like no other passage in the New Testament. Now this parable of Jesus and the entire chapter of Luke 15 is really a parable, but it's a parable in three acts. A parable of three things lost and found. Three things lost and found. First of all, a lost and found sheep. Secondly, a lost and found coin. And then thirdly, a lost and found son. Now, I want you to notice this morning as we look at the first two of these parables that Jesus taught and this lost and found, as he talks about two things that are lost, this whole parable was precipitated by some things that were happening. These, these parables, this parable was not just told by Jesus in a vacuum. Something precipitated Jesus sharing these three wonderful examples. And I want you to notice that he really precipitated the stories that he shared because of his scandalous behavior. Yes, Jesus was guilty of something very scandalous. And you will find it in verse number 1. Look at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. The tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Now if you remember our journey through this gospel, you will remember that it was Jesus that started this following of tax collectors and sinners. Back in chapter 5, we read that Jesus went to the tax collector Matthew and called him to be his fifth disciple. The first four, Simon, Andrew, James, and John, were fishermen. And who did they have to pay tax to every day? For their catch of fish. A tax collector by the name of Matthew. Who was considered a traitor to his people. Because he had purchased the tax franchise. He had to pay Rome. A certain amount of tax. And anything over the top. He could keep for himself. And it was Jesus. Who went to the tax collector. And I'm sure he didn't take a vote from the first four. <laughs> and called this least likely of men in Capernaum to be his follower. And the Bible tells us that Matthew left. He left his tax collecting and he began to follow Jesus. And that night he was so excited with what the Lord had done in his life. He decided to throw a party for all of his friends. And guess who his only friends were? Other tax collectors. And so the Lord takes his disciples to literally a tax collector convention. 
and he fellowships with them. He eats with them. He is friendly to them. This is scandalous. This is not done, certainly not done by a rabbi, a teacher of God's law. You see, the Pharisees considered the tax collectors and the sinners. The sinners are people who are notorious for their breaking of God's law. The Pharisees called them the people of the land. We are the people of God. We are the people of Zion. But these, these lawbreakers, they're the people of the land. And they taught that no godly person would have anything to do with people who were known to be active lawbreakers and certainly not to have anything to do with those who would be traitors to their people like the tax collectors. But Jesus was a friend to these sinners. And I want you to make sure you understand, beloved, Jesus did not act like he was a friend to these sinners. He was a friend to them. And aren't we thankful that he's a friend to sinners? Wow. What did this produce? When Jesus allows these tax collectors and sinners to follow him, you know what it produced? It produced what I call gospel grumbling. Gospel grumbling. You say, what in the world is that about? Well, listen to verse 2. Here's gospel grumbling. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Grumbled. You know what that word grumbled there is an interesting word. It's a form of onomatopoeia. It's, it's a word that doesn't really mean anything. It just conveys a sound and the sound is the meaning. And the word here for grumbling is a word, gagudzo. Gagudzo. Can't you just hear that? Gagudzo, gagudzo, gagudzo. That's what these scribes and Pharisees are doing. They see these tax collectors, these sinners, Jesus hanging out with them. Gagudzo, gagudzo, gagudzo. They're grumbling. But in their grumbling, you know what they're doing? Sharing the gospel. Here's the gospel. This man receives sinners and eats with them. Out of the mouths of his greatest enemies comes the grumbling of the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ is a friend of sinners. He receives them and he fellowships with them. These Pharisees and scribes, they articulate the gospel, so Jesus just takes them up. He takes what they say and he illustrates the gospel. So here's where chapter 15 really begins in these three acts of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. Jesus is telling stories, parables, that illustrate what these religious leaders cannot understand. That God is a God of mercy. 
And that the Heavenly Father is seeking those that are lost. And Jesus has come on a mission to seek those lost for His Father. And so Jesus illustrates what these Pharisees and scribes have just said. Now notice the three illustrations of lost and found. But we're going to look at the first two quickly. The lost sheep and the lost coin. Now, as Rebecca read this, this passage this morning, maybe you noted three words, three words that carry the entire story of these two illustrations. Illustration of a lost sheep and illustration of a lost coin, but there's three words that drive the whole message of Jesus. Do you see them? First word, lost. Verse 4 and verse 8. The second word, found. Verse 5 and verse 9. And the third word, joy. Joy. Verse 6 and 7 and verse 9 and 10. Something has been lost. It's been found. And the result is joy. That's the gospel. Now let's look at these three words. The first word is the word lost. Lost. This word defines the horrible reality of people who are lost. And Jesus asked two questions. He asked two questions to the entire audience, but he specifically directing it to the Pharisees and scribes, two questions about these tax collectors and these sinners who follow him. Two questions. And he uses two examples, and they're so simple, they're so profound, they're so powerful. Now listen to the first question Jesus asked. First question in the first examples in verse 4, Jesus said, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Now, there is no stronger living example of lostness than a lost sheep. I mean, quite frankly, <laughs> sheep are stupid. <laughs> They're cute, I'm pleased, I'm not a sheep hater, but it's not hate speech against sheep. But sheep have no sense of direction. Sheep are defenseless. When sheep can't get lost, they can't find their way back. Sheep, when they wander away into the wilderness, they are oblivious of the world around them. They're oblivious of the fierce animals that are trying to devour them. And when they're lost, they just keep on meandering, meandering in a wilderness world, oblivious to their moment-by-moment -moment mortality. Does that remind you of anyone? Sounds 
a lot like me left to myself. And I hate to say, but yes, left to myself, I'm stupid. <laughs> a lost sheep without him. Lost. Then Jesus asks a second question. He gives a second example. First example is the lost sheep. Notice the second question and the second example. Verse 8, Jesus says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Now the first example of a lost sheep, everyone in the crowd is like, yeah, that's, that's sheep for you, you know. But when Jesus gives this example, the example of the lost coin, all the women in the audience would gasp. They would gasp. Why? It's not because of the value of this coin. This coin is a drachma, which means a, a, a day's wage. But notice, it's not just one coin that it's lost. Notice, it's one coin of ten that is lost. And a Jewish bride, traditionally in that day, would wear ten coins attached together across her bridal headdress. The ten coins would have been a gift for the wedding from her father. These ten coins would have had great value of sentiment to this woman. They were given to her by her father. They were also given to her as a form of security, sort of an emergency fund. Because women in that day, wives in that day, were at the mercy of their husbands. They could be cut off and sent away. This was her gift. It was a gift of sentiment. It was from her father. It was a gift of security. And she's lost it. After the wedding day, the women would typically take this band of coins, change it into a necklace, wear it around her neck under her garment. And so now this woman has lost this twice valuable coin. It's, it's completely lost. Now, when Jesus talks about a lost coin, this is completely lost because it might be possible that a lost sheep would find its way back, but a lost coin can never find itself. It's lost. Completely lost. But my friend, listen. This is where hope enters the parables here. Because with God, being helplessly lost is not the same as being hopelessly lost, right? Because there is a God of hope. There is a Savior of hope. Because there is a Savior who came to seek and to save those who are, what? Lost. It's His mission. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. Someone can be helplessly lost, but because of Jesus, you're not hopelessly lost. 
Now that leads us to the second word here, word of hope. The word here is the second word. It's the word for the, the second act of the parable. It's the word found, found. And it talks about the heart-driven response. There's this terrible reality, but now there's this heart-driven response of a seeking shepherd, of a searching woman. Why did Jesus use these examples of a seeking shepherd, seeking a lost lamb, and a, a searching woman searching for that coin? Because they are gospel images. They're images of the good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ. That's the reason he used them. They're images of one who is devoted and determined to seek those who are lost. And that one is Jesus Christ, our Savior. What a gospel image we have here. Look at verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open field? That means he didn't abandon them. He just left them with the other shepherds. They're safe. But there's one that is lost. And he leaves the ninety-nine and he goes after the one is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing now notice there's a hundred sheep and the shepherd knows all the sheep but he also knows each one of the sheep individually they're not just a flock he knows them each one and when one wanders off the shepherd does not go after the lost sheep in frustration he goes after the lost sheep in devotion because he loves the sheep. This is his sheep. Why does the shepherd go after this sheep? Because it's his sheep. He identifies with this sheep. In this gospel parable, Jesus is the shepherd. He is the seeking shepherd. And in Comparing himself to the seeking shepherd, Jesus compares himself to the highest and the lowest. I want you to see this. He compares himself to the highest and the lowest because in comparing himself to a seeking shepherd, he is comparing himself to the God of Israel. How do we know that? Because God, the God of Israel, said through Ezekiel, his prophet, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, he said this, For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search out my sheep and I will find them. That's what the God of Israel said. And the God of Israel is here in the form of Jesus Christ. He's come to seek and save his sheep. But notice, in identifying himself with the highest, with the God of Israel, he's also identifying himself with the lowest because you need to understand this. The shepherds of the day were not highly regarded. As a matter of fact, because they were constantly dealing with bloody 
or dead animals. They were perpetually unclean. They were not able to go in the synagogue. They were considered untrustworthy. As a matter of fact, they were considered so untrustworthy, a shepherd couldn't even serve as a witness in a Jewish court of law. Because they just thought you couldn't count on a shepherd to tell the truth. And Jesus compares himself to a shepherd. He's the highest. He's like God. And yet he's come to be the lowest and identify with the lowest. He's majestic and he's merciful. That's our Savior. Amen? Majestic and merciful. Listen, Jesus is the God shepherd. He's the God shepherd. He's the good shepherd because he truly is good because he is God incarnate who has come to seek and to save those that are lost, seeking the lost sheep, saving the lost sheep. Jesus is a seeking shepherd who seeks and is seeking sheep. And guess what? The sheep aren't seeking him. The sheep are lost. They're they're wayward. They've gone astray. They're not seeking the shepherd. The shepherd's seeking them. And Jesus is the saving shepherd. He doesn't just seek the sheep. He saves the sheep. But notice, how does he save the sheep? He goes. And he finds the sheep. And what are we told? He finds the sheep. Verse 5. And when he has found it, He lays it on his shoulder. Now the word here is for sheep, not a word for a little lamb. This is a full-grown sheep. Average weight, about a hundred pounds. The shepherd goes, finds the lost sheep, scoops that sheep up, puts the sheep on his own shoulders, Holds that sheep by the hoofs. Carries that sheep on his shoulder back home. Do you see the Savior? Do you see him? He carried the full weight of our burden on his shoulder. Our wasted life. Our wayward life. The full weight of all of our sinful life. He put on his shoulders and transferred the weight of our sins to his holy shoulders. My friend, the burden that Jesus bore on the cross was not just the burden of the cross itself. It was the burden of the full weight of our sin. My friend, I want you to take a look at the shepherd today. Listen, look to him. Not just with the eyes of your, your head, and, but with the eyes of your heart and soul. And I want you to see Jesus today as a shepherd who's seeking the lost sheep. And I want you to hear the gospel message. It's the same gospel message that Isaiah shared as he prophesied about this shepherd. What did Isaiah say? He said this, through the Lord God's inspiration... Isaiah 53, 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has 
placed on him the iniquity of us all. That's our saving shepherd. The seeking, saving shepherd. That's Jesus. But friend, I want you to see one other image he used here. here. And this is amazing. Jesus says he's not just like the seeking shepherd. He's also like the searching woman. The searching woman. Look at verse 8. What woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and diligently seek until she finds it. Now again, Jesus identifies with someone unlikely. He identifies himself with the shepherds who are not considered of great value. And now, isn't this amazing? Jesus compares himself to a woman. And a woman in that day was often oppressed and neglected. A Jewish rabbi was not even supposed to talk to a woman that was not his wife or even acknowledge the presence of a woman. And so many of Jesus' followers were those who were women. He identifies with those who are considered of less value. Why does he compare himself to this woman? Because notice, this woman has lost this precious coin. And she is determined, she is relentless to find this coin. She knows she's lost it in the house. But you have to understand the house of that day. An average house that day might be the size of a one-car garage for us. It was usually built out of baked dirt clay with a dirt floor and they kept the mud settled down by regularly putting straw in it and the people would walk on the straw as the floors of their house and now you see this woman has lost this precious coin and it's it's not just a needle in a haystack no she's lost this precious coin in a filthy matted floor But it is so precious to her. Do you see her? She's down on her knees. She's prying away through these months and months of mud and dirt and filth. And she's searching and she's searching to find that one coin that's lost. What a picture we have here of Jesus. Who came to this earth. He came not to seek the good, the righteous He came to this dark and dirty world to find His image bearers marred by sin and rebellion who have no value to the devil, no value to the world, but they're priceless to Him. That's our Savior. He's not remote and up in the heavens yonder someplace. He came here. He's here now. And in the places that we think are dirty and God abandoned, our Savior's there doing His work. Places we think He would never go, He's there because there's no place God is not. And people we have given up on, He's not given up on. Praise God. Many people are not willing to get their hands dirty in the work of God. But God's willing to get his hands dirty in the work of salvation. 
Jesus finds that coin that's lost. And when he finds it, he wraps his omnipotent grip of grace around that lost coin. And that lost coin is his. When our Lord, with his grip of grace, takes hold of us, the lost sheep and the lost coin, when, when this happens, what's, what's the outcome? When there's a lost sheep that the Savior's put on his shoulders, he's bringing home, there's a lost coin, a lost sinner in filth and dirt that he's taken hold of by his grip of grace. What's the outcome? The outcome's the third word. And the third word is what? Joy. Joy. There's joy. There's the joy of the seeking shepherd. Verse 6, what's it say? When he comes home, he calls together with his friends and his neighbors saying to them, what? Stupid sheep. Frustrated me all day. You can't believe what he put me through. No. Rejoice. Rejoice with me. I have found my sheep that was lost. Joy. The seeking shepherd finding the lost sheep rejoices. And what about the searching woman? What about her? Verse 9. And when she found it, she found that dirty coin. She found that lost coin matted in the dirt and filth and darkness. She called together her friends. And the word friends here is feminine. It means her girlfriends, her neighbors. It's feminine. She gets together all of her friends and says... You must rejoice with me. Rejoice with me because I found that coin. I found that precious coin. There's joy in the village when the shepherd comes home. There's joy in the village when the woman finds the coin. But my friend, where is the ultimate joy in this story? Where's the ultimate scene of joy? It's not on earth. <laughs> Look at this. Both of these stories end with this application. There is joy where? Where is there joy for the seeking shepherd that has found his sheep? Verse 7, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And here Jesus is making a not-so-veiled reference to the self-righteous Pharisees. The 99 who don't think that they need saving. But this sheep, this lost soul, who by God's grace has been found and come to repentance by His amazing love, when He repents, heaven rejoices. Isn't this something? The religious leaders don't know the joy of the religion of their God. They don't know their God's joy. <laughs> 
joyless religion. How can it be? There's joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Look at the story of the searching woman, the lost coin. Verse 10, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, did you notice that carefully? It doesn't say the angels rejoice. I'm sure they do. Where is the rejoicing? Look again at verse 10. There's rejoicing before the angels. Who is standing before the angels? Who is seated before the angels? The Lord God Almighty. And the joy is the joy coming from His great heart. Almighty God rejoicing over someone who by His grace has repented, lost has been found, redeemed by His Son. God rejoices over every sinner that comes to Him. How can it be this morning that some of you would believe for a moment that God would not rejoice over you? How can you accept the lie that somehow God is not concerned for you. He gave His Son for you, my friend. And He rejoices over every single one. You're not forgotten. You're not just a name in the crowd. No, God knows you. He, pre he formed you in His image. You, you're marred. You're maybe not like Him. None of us are. Much like our great God. But our great God's mission and joy is to bring His sons and daughters back to Him. There's joy in heaven. I love what C.S. Lewis, the British writer, said. He said this, Joy is the serious business of heaven. <laughs> that is good. The only way I could like that more is if I had said it. <laughs> joy is the serious business of heaven. There is serious joy in heaven when one person repents. I wonder what do you need to take away from God's lost and found this morning? This is God's lost and found. What do you need to take away from it? Just this last few minutes here, just for a moment. Think about some personal treasures. God's got some personal treasures in His lost and found for some of us today. Treasures. What's the first treasure? There's the treasure of the comfort of the gospel. The comfort of the gospel. What have I said to you earlier, my friend? Listen to me. It's a word of comfort to your soul to be helplessly lost is not to be hopelessly lost. You can't help yourself, but there's someone who will come to you in your helplessness. And that is the mighty God, the shepherd, savior, the seeking Lord Jesus Christ. That's the comfort. 
He came to seek and to save those who are lost. And he rejoices in that. Take comfort in that. Yesterday, noon in my office, a young couple and a little girl, they came to see me. And I told them the reason they were sitting there was because God was already working their life. I know that. Nobody just walks in to see a pastor and say, hey, I want to open my life up to <laughs> you. No, God's at work. And they were concerned about some things in their life. But they knew God was doing an awakening. And what a privilege it was to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ, to tell them about the seeking Savior. What a privilege to join hands with them as they prayed in repentance and gave their lives to Christ. Friend, listen. That's what the Lord will do. He will. For all who will turn to Him. That's the comfort. What's the confidence of the gospel? How about that for some of us today? The confidence of the gospel. Let me tell you something. Here's the confidence of the gospel. The grip of the Lord Jesus Christ is a grip of grace and it is never released. When he takes hold of a lost soul, he takes that soul forever. And that soul will never be lost. It's a grip that lasts for a lifetime. Again yesterday, at 10 o'clock, I was talking with my friend Mike at his house. He may be watching. And I've had the opportunity on a number of occasions to talk with Mike at the age of 59 now facing an illness for which there is no human answer given not a long time to live but you know what Mike has the peace of God in his heart Mike has shared his faith in the Lord and I could tell Mike with absolute confidence as I'm telling you that every one of God's children, He has you in His grip. And there's not one thing in this world that can separate you from that grip of grace. And He will carry you, that shepherd that took you on His shoulders, He will never put you down until you're inside the gates of glory. Let me tell you, the older I get, the more I claim, Isaiah 46.3, where God says, even to your old age, I will be the same. Even to your graying hairs, I will carry you. I will save you. And I will carry you. Yes, I will save you. I've been following my Lord Jesus for 47 years. But I want to tell you, it would be more apt to say He's been carrying me. He's been carrying me. And my hope is not in one thing that I've done. My hope is not in any righteousness or goodness 
My hope, my only hope, is that the one who took hold of me in February of 1974 will never let go of me until he brings me safely home. That's our Savior. That's confidence, my friend. I don't know what you're facing. I don't know what you're going through. For some, I do. And it's difficult and terrible, I'm sure. But let me tell you, my friend, do not listen to the deceitful lie of the enemy. God has you. The Lord Jesus has taken you and you're his grip. And nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What about the cause of the gospel? How much of our lives is about God's cause? How much of my praying is about the cause of the gospel? How much of my service is about the gospel? How much of my giving reflects the cause of God? And another, lastly, personal treasure here is the celebration of the gospel. How much of joy is heaven? The joy of heaven is in your heart. I want to tell you, after talking yesterday to those dear folks, I got a lot of it in my heart this morning. A lot. My friend, I want to tell you, here's cause to celebrate. You may not be able to celebrate the condition that you are in or the situation you are in, but you can celebrate the wonderful, absolute, completely trustworthy, relentless power of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And that by His grace, with a nail-scarred hand, He's taken hold of you. When's the last time you celebrated that? Some of us, God help us, we complain so easily about changes that we forget to celebrate what can never change. The changeless love of our Savior Jesus Christ. You know what we need to do? Is just be in His presence and be amazed all over again. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how He could love me. A sinner condemned unclean. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them His very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and he suffered and he died alone. When with the ransom and glory, his face I at last shall see. T'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful 
and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Let's bow our heads. Oh, dear friend, God has some treasures and is lost and found. There's a treasure of comfort for you, my friend. You may feel lost. And Jesus came just for you to seek and to save those who are lost. You see, when you know that you're lost, you're so near the kingdom. Don't look within, look to Jesus. By faith, believe that He came for you. He died for you. He bore your burden to Calvary. He suffered. He died alone. He rose again. He ascended to be your living Savior. Oh, friend, there's comfort. Take comfort in that. My friend, take comfort this morning on loved ones that you feel like have gone too far. Oh, they seem helplessly lost, yes, but they're not hopelessly lost. No, not when the God of hope is on the hunt for those who are lost. You keep praying, you keep witnessing, you keep sharing the love of Christ. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by Him. Oh, friend, How about the cause of the gospel? Is the gospel on your lips? Is Jesus the master, the good shepherd on your lips in prayer, on your lips in your testimony? Oh, we need to be about the cause of our Lord. To seek and to save along with him. As his ambassadors, those who are lost. And dear friend, just celebrate right now. Maybe you haven't got a thing in the world you think that you can be thankful for. Thank God for Jesus. Amen. Thank him. Thank him. That if you know he's taken hold of you, he will never let go. And be amazed by that again.